to welcome Dr. Greg Norfleet uh, to the pulpit as he opens the word. Uh, give him your full attention. More importantly, give the Holy Spirit and the Word of God uh, your full intention as our brother brings a message from the Lord. Well, it's a joy to be with you all. We uh, had the easiest drive up from North Carolina a couple of days ago. We know you've been praying for us, and it just... Uh, it's a delight to be among you all. We feel so welcome. Uh, we so appreciate your kindness and reaching out to us and uh, thankful for the opportunity to worship with you this morning. I'm going to be preaching from the Gospel of Mark from chapter 6, and we'll look at a few verses in just a few minutes. But just by way of orientation, let me remind you that the Gospel of Mark is written to answer this all-important question, who is this man? Throughout the Gospel of Mark, that's the question that is always being posed. Who is he? And right in the center, kids, you might want to look this up. Right in the center of the Gospel of Mark, there are about the same amount of verses to the left and about the same amount of verses to the right. Right in the center of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus poses this question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter looks Jesus in the eye and says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. But coming to a firm and settled understanding of who Jesus is, is not as easy as you might think. As we read along in the Gospel of Mark, we see people like me, people like you. People like us who are slow to understand who is this man. And the diagnosis, the Bible calls it hardness of heart. And the definition, a serious, nagging, stubborn condition of unbelief. And you know, and I know, that in our fallen state, we are naturally unresponsive to God. And the grace that we need and the grace that God gives is the grace of the Holy Spirit to create a new desire, a new responsiveness, eyes opened to see who He is. But even we as Christians with new hearts softened by grace are vulnerable to hearts that become hard. Yes, as Christians in Christ we have died to sin. But sin has not yet died in us, and it's always crouching at the door. Remnant sin, no longer reigning, and yet nevertheless remnant, and always crouching at the door, seeking to deceive and seeking to harden. The symptoms, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson mentions too. On the one hand, there is forgetfulness. We forget the lessons that God has so clearly taught us in Christ. But on the other hand, there's fearfulness. Fearful in the circumstances in which God has placed us. And can I tell you a secret? I struggle with that quite a bit. A fearfulness. Even a little bit on this trip. Forgetfulness, fearfulness. Just a couple of the symptoms that mark our struggle with a hardness 
of heart. But here's the focus this morning. What happens when the real God meets our real need? Before we take a look at the passage before us, let me just set the stage. Jesus knows his disciples need rest. And so they get into the boat and they go to a solitary place. And the crowd sees Jesus and his disciples and they run ahead of him. And Jesus comes to shore and he sees the crowd and he has compassion for them. And he understands that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so he teaches the crowd all day. And the day grows late, and the disciples urge Jesus to send them away, and Jesus looks them in the eye and says, you give them something to eat. How many loaves do you have? They respond, five loaves and two fish, and Jesus instructs the crowds to sit down in groups of fifties and hundreds, and he miraculously multiplies the bread and feeds the 5,000 just as God miraculously felled his people in the wilderness. And the point, of course, is that in Jesus Christ, God himself has come as the good shepherd to accomplish a new and greater exodus. But the disciples are slow to understand because their hearts are hardened. I'm slow to understand. I suspect if you're honest, you're slow to understand who Jesus is. Sometimes we're even so stubborn to see and trust. But Jesus wants to speak a word of hope to you today. He takes aim at our fallen condition and he speaks a word of hope. Our slow and stubborn heart is no match for his deep and stubborn love. Listen to God's word reveal to us what happens next from Mark chapter 6 verses 45 through 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now let me just pause there for a second. The earthly priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus points to his heavenly priestly ministry. And what do you think he's praying for? There he is before the Father with your name over his heart. And he's praying for you. He's praying for you. The Apostle Paul gives us window into the sort of prayers that our Lord Jesus prays for his people. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be open in order that you might know the hope to which you've been called. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance that God has in His people, the saints? And what is the incomparable great power toward us who believe flowing from our Lord Jesus Christ? He prays for you. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And He was alone on the land. And He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, 
it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let me pray for us. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that in Jesus we have a great high priest and we come through him to your throne of grace in order that we might find mercy and find grace to help in time of need, today's time of need. And we know that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by your Spirit. And we pray that by your Spirit, working together with your Word, you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, and all of his mercy, and all of his grace for us in our time of need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's learn about who Jesus is by tracing what Jesus does. First of all, did you notice Jesus sees you in your distress? And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Verse 48. It's a picture of our fallen condition, isn't it? The wind was against them. There's trouble from outside of us pressing in against us. There's trouble inside of us and welling up outside of us. The circumstantial woes, the hardships that press against us. The Bible calls it the problem of suffering. Constantly dripping and sometimes feeling like a hurricane coming against you. Circumstantial woes. But then there's the moral and the personal drift the wandering, sin living in me, sin living in you, the lies we believe, the lust we pursue, the problem of sin and suffering. And it's a picture of our human weakness. They were making headway painfully, the disciples straining at the oars. Is this not your experience? Is this not what COVID-19 has felt like? So painfully making progress against the wind, on top of all the other hardships that we're experiencing even before that came along. And the need for power is great, but your human supply is not equal to the pressing demand. And it's a picture, though, of our wakeful Savior. He saw. Slow down and ponder that. He sees you in distress. He has you in full view. He sees you beset by the problem of sin and suffering. And his heart wells up with compassion for you. The great B.B. Warfield wrote a little book. The Emotional Life of Our Lord Jesus. And he found that the most frequent reference to the emotional life of our Lord was his compassion. He sees you 
and his heart wells up within him with compassion, and it goes out toward you. Does that not begin to encourage you? The psalmist writes, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And that's one consolation. He sees you in your distress. But secondly, did you notice, Jesus comes to you in power. About the fourth watch of the night, that is shortly before dawn, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. In the Bible, the unruly waters are signs, they're symbols, they are images of the evil that presses around us, the evil that wells up with inside us, the chaos, the turmoil, death. In the Old Testament, God promised that He Himself would come to us in the storm. And in the New Testament, God keeps His promise by coming to us in the person of His Son. And on Good Friday, Jesus came under the waters. He comes under the flood. He comes under the powers of sin and death for His people. But on Sunday... Jesus breaks the chain and was raised to what the Bible calls the power of an indestructible life. So here, to see Jesus walking on the sea is to see a preview of the Lord of glory who triumphs over death for His people. Over the last year and a half, I have lived in the Psalms. Psalm. 93, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voices. The floods lift up their roaring. But then it pivots. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves on the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. You see how the Bible teaches us not to ignore the waters, not to live like a stoic and act like it's not there. No, the Bible teaches us to acknowledge and look it in the eye and take seriously our troubles, and yet the Bible teaches us to outweigh the waters, mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. And when you look at your sufferings, does it seem sometimes like they're just going to engulf you? When you take an honest look at sin living in you, sin living in me, does it seem like indwelling sin is going to enslave you? Take a long look at the Lord of glory who treads the rowdy sea. He is the living and working Redeemer who brings consolation to sufferers and true transformation for sinners. He sees you in distress. He comes to you in power. But notice thirdly, Jesus longs to show you His goodness. 
Verse 48, he meant to pass by them. Kids, this is not as though Jesus is in a race trying to beat the disciples to the other side. But that Jesus intends to show them something of himself. And how do we know this? These words are an echo of God's word to Moses. Remember Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Moses says to the Lord, you have told me to lead these people, but you have not told me whom you will send with me. And God says to Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses pleads, then show me your glory. And the Lord responds, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And the text reads, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So to see Jesus meaning to pass them by is to see a preview of the Lord of mercy who suffers under the curse for us. How deep is the Father's love? How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure how great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which marred the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held Him there until it was all accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So on display here is not only our Lord Jesus who is mighty, but also our Lord Jesus who is mercy. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God for you. But our hearts are so stubborn. And so slow to understand. And so we misinterpret who Jesus is. They thought, verse 49, they thought that he was a ghost. And in misinterpreting who Jesus is, they respond to that misinterpretation. They cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Verse 50. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the essence of sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Next, uh, next month, August 15th, Cindy and I will celebrate our, our 15th wedding anniversary. 15th wedding anniversary. 33rd wedding anniversary. <laughs> our 33rd. I wonder where that came from. I'll remember the day when I, when I bought the ring and I walked out of the jeweler's store. And you'll never believe what he did. He gave me the ring but he also gave me the box. 
the Apostle Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He'll not only give us the ring, our treasure, our Lord Jesus Christ, but graciously give us all things together with him. I recall counseling a woman and asked her, so tell me, I'd love to understand your view of who God is. And as she spoke, I began to understand why she was so afraid. Understandably so. Because she really did believe that he was not good. He was against her. Is your heart ever darkened to think like that? Do you view Jesus through a darkened lens? Do you have the suspicion that he's not good, that he's against you, that he's out to harm you? Well, if so, it's understandable that you would be terrified of him. But the ghost that you think you see is not the Jesus who is on display in this passage. Do you see? Our slow and stubborn heart is no match for his deep and stubborn love. Jesus keeps moving toward you. He will not let go of you. He will not give you over to a misunderstanding of who he is. So he sees you in distress. He comes to you in power. He longs to show you his goodness. And fourthly, did you notice, Jesus speaks peace into your fear. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 50. You remember how God prepared Moses to deliver his people in the first exodus. Moses says to the Lord, when they ask me what is his name, then what shall I tell them? And the Lord responds, I am who I am. Say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And you remember how God promised through the prophet Isaiah to deliver his people in the final exodus. This time, God promised not to send a mere mortal like Moses, but that he himself would come to his people to deliver us from our woes and all of our wanderings. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Isaiah 41. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Even to your old age, I am He. I will sustain you and rescue you. I am He. I am the first. I am the last. You begin to notice a pattern. He longs to reveal who He is. And so here to see Jesus is to see God Himself coming to us. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am your light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Did you know that the most frequent command in Scripture, you ever thought about that? What does God most repeatedly command His people? Do not fear. 
He says it more than any other command. Do not fear. Now, what does that tell us? That he would say this so frequently. It tells us that our stubborn distrust of God's goodness runs very deep. But it also tells us that God's stubborn passion to reinstate His rule and to regain your trust runs deeper still. Peter writes, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them we may escape the corruption that is caused by evil desire, evil distrust. And David the king writes, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. I know the character. I know the promise. The Lord will not let me go. The Lord will not let me die. The Lord is faithful. He will help me. He sees you in distress. He comes to you with power. He longs to show you His goodness, and He speaks peace into your fear. But lastly, and best of all, Jesus binds Himself to you. He binds Himself to you in covenant. In Mark's telling of the story, Jesus got into the boat with them. In John's telling of the same story, he writes, they were willing to take Jesus into the boat. It's a picture of Jesus forging a bond. It's a picture of two sides of the relationship. Jesus comes to you, and Jesus bids that you come to Him. It's about union. It's about communion. I will be yours, and you will be mine. I will help you. You must trust me. And when Jesus comes near, what is the result? Verse 51, the wind ceased. What a contrast. The scene begins with the wind strong against them, but it concludes with the wind stilled before them. And to see the wind cease is to see a preview of the Lord who comes near to give you, to give me rest. It's a vivid picture of the rest that Jesus gives. But the Bible teaches us that it's a rest that we do not enjoy in its fullness all at once. In one sense, it's a rest that we enjoy already. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a deep rest inwardly for our soul. Four days ago, Cindy and I visited the cemetery back home in Chapel Hill. It was July 8th, 27 years ago when we learned that our first child 
and the second trimester had died. And I'll never forget waking up the next morning. It was as though I was living in a hurricane. Circumstantial hardship just pressing against us. And yet at the same time, I'll never forget in a way that I could not explain, in the midst of the hurricane, there was a peace of soul. It was like tomorrow's peace had pressed into today's trouble. It was like it was like a real bit of heaven in a real moment of hardship. Come to me and I will give you rest. And the wind ceased. It's a rest that we enjoy already in Jesus. But you read the news and you look out the window and you see that the kingdoms of this world have not yet become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. There's a rest that is not yet, even though there's a rest that is already. And John the Apostle gets a view of the rest to come. In Revelation chapter 4, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Rest. No more roaring. No more waves. But the reigning God brings rest. Imagine coming to share in that rest fully. To share in God's rest. No more suffering and sin. No more crying and pain. Only rest under His rule. And this Lord's day is a sign that points us to the eternal rest that is ours in Christ. So we give ourselves to worship. And we give ourselves to rest. And we give ourselves to giving others a foretaste of the rest that Jesus gives. So he sees you in your distress. He comes to you in his power. He longs to show you his goodness. He speaks peace into your fear. And he binds himself to you. This is the person and power of Christ. Working for you. Walking with you. Living in you. And how will we respond? How did they respond? Well, they were astounded. And as one commentator puts it, that's not a compliment. That's a gentle rebuke. After all that Jesus had done to show that he himself is God in the flesh who comes to save, they should not have been surprised by his power to tread the sea and to still the wind. But they were utterly astounded because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So let's not make the mistake. Let's not make the same mistake. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See that our slow and stubborn heart is no match for God's deep and stubborn love. And respond with awe and thankfulness 
at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ right here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in all of Scripture, you are always speaking the truth to us in love. You are pursuing us. And we thank you for this living and working Redeemer, the one, the one whom the prophet Isaiah, standing on tiptoe as it were, could look down the corridors of time and see then will the eyes of the blind be opened. Then will the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This is who you are. This is who we need. And we thank you that you keep moving towards us so wonderfully stubbornly to overthrow our stubborn unbelief. And we pray that you would continue the good work that you are doing in the life of Harvest Church, that your spirit would be poured out into the wilderness, and that you would make and continue to make Harvest a light to this community, to West Michigan, and beyond. And we thank you that we have the privilege of participating in this great work of redemption. Make us faithful instruments in your hand. And thank you that you are so faithful to hold us fast. And we give you our gratitude and our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.